From New York, this is Democracy Now! We are in a multi-front war and are coming under attack from seven different theaters. Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, West Bank, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran. We have already responded and taken actions in six of these theaters. And I say here in the most explicit way, anyone who acts against us is a potential target. There is no immunity for anyone. Will Israel drag the U.S. into another war as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken makes his fourth or fifth visit to Saudi Arabia and Israel. We'll speak with the Quincy Institute's Trita Parsi, who says Biden refuses to pursue the most obvious way of de-escalating tensions, a ceasefire in Gaza. Then two more journalists were killed by an Israeli strike Sunday. Among the victims was the eldest son of Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, Wael Adadu, who'd already lost his wife, daughter, younger son, and a grandson in an Israeli airstrike in October. How can someone receive the death of their oldest son and everything in my life after I lost some of my family members, my wife, son Mohammed and Sham and Adam? How can I receive this? Then... Hundreds of Boeing 737 MAX 9 jetliners have been grounded or canceled after a door plug blew off and left a gaping hole in an Alaska Airlines plane Friday. We'll speak with the head of the Foundation for Aviation Safety, a former Boeing senior manager who previously raised concerns to his supervisors, and with Nadja Milleron, who helped pass new aviation safety regulations after her daughter, Samia Stumo, was killed along with 156 others when Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, a Boeing 737 MAX, crashed in 2019. Boeing has misbehaved, has created dangerous circumstances, has risked people's lives often in these three years. And you have just seen the most egregious example of that. So the, the blowout in the plane could have killed people, but there are quite a few other circumstances reported by pilots that also could have killed people. And they happen monthly, at least. But on more... Coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's bombardment of Gaza has entered its fourth month as United Nations' top humanitarian official warns the relentless assault has left Gaza uninhabitable. According to Palestinian health officials, the death toll in Gaza has topped 23,000, including almost 10,000 children. U.N. Emergency Relief Chief Martin Griffith said Gaza Gaza has become a, quote, place of death and despair. He said Gaza's on the verge of famine as it faces the, quote, highest levels of food insecurity ever recorded, unquote. Israel's war continues to take a devastating toll on Palestinian journalists. By one count, 110 journalists have been killed in Gaza over the past more than three months. On Sunday, an Israeli airstrike in southern Gaza killed two journalists, Mustafa Tharaya of AFP and Hamza al-Dadu. Hamza was the eldest son of Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, Wael al-Dadu, who had already lost his wife, daughter, another 
son and a grandson in an Israeli airstrike in October. In December, Wael was injured himself in a drone strike that killed his cameraman, Samar al-Duka. On Sunday, Wael al-Dadu decried the Israeli attacks on his family and the people of Gaza. The world must see with their own eyes and not with Israel's eyes. It must listen and watch all that is happening to the Palestinian people. What has Hamza done to them? And what has my family done to them? What have civilians in Gaza Strip done to them? They have not done anything. The world is blinded by what is going on in Gaza. Al Jazeera journalist Hind Khaldri broke down crying on air as she talked about the death of her friend and colleague Hamza Al-Dadu. Hamza was a very beautiful man and journalist and friend and I, I don't want to cry but I'm reporting this right now because I know that if, if Hamza was here he wanted me to report and he wanted all of our, his colleagues to report and to continue reporting. And I'm so proud of Hamza and everything he did and everything he reported during the 90 days and more than 90 days and how he was very strong despite everything he went through with his father. Hamza was a great friend for, for everyone and every, our tears today is because we miss him and we're going to miss him and we're going to miss his smile. Al Jazeera's Hamza al-Dadu was killed on the day U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken went to Qatar. Qatar owns Al Jazeera. Meanwhile, the United Nations reports there are just five doctors remaining at Al-Aqsa Hospital, the largest hospital in central Gaza, which is coming under repeated attacks by Israel. The World Health Organization says 600 patients have been forced to evacuate the hospital, the whereabouts of those former patients now unknown. Sean Casey, the WHO medical team coordinator, spoke from inside the hospital. There are patients coming in every few minutes, um, and it's, it's really a chaotic scene. The hospital director just spoke to us, and he said his one request is that this hospital be protected, even though many of his staff have left, even though this hospital is under enormous pressure. The one request that the hospital director said is that the international community needs to make sure that this hospital and other hospitals like it stay protected, that they not get struck, that they not get evacuated, that they're able to continue functioning. That's the critical message for today. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz is reporting a group of family members of Israelis who were killed in Kibbutz Be'eri on October 7th by Hamas are demanding a probe into how their relatives died. An Israeli brigadier general recently admitted he ordered an Israeli tank commander to fire on a home where Hamas fighters were holding 15 Israeli hostages. Brigadier General Barak Hiram told The New York Times he'd ordered the tank commander to, quote, break in even at the cost of civilian casualties. Only two of the 15 Israeli hostages survived. A suspected Israeli strike in southern Lebanon killed a senior commander in an elite unit of Hezbollah earlier today in a move that further escalates tension in the region. Security sources told Reuters Israel struck a car carrying Wissam al-Tawil and another Hezbollah fighter. Last week, Israel assassinated a Hamas leader outside Beirut. 
U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken is back in the Middle East to meet with leaders across the region. During a stop in Qatar, Blinken warned the war in Gaza could, quote, easily metastasize into a regional war. While Blinken's publicly calling for de-escalation, the Biden administration continues to face criticism for sending more weapons to Israel while carrying out its own attacks on Iraq and Syria, as well as targeting Houthi forces in Yemen. On Friday, the prime minister of Iraq threatened to kick out U.S. troops after a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad killed a leader of an Iranian-backed militia. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is facing growing questions about why he did not inform President Biden or top Pentagon officials after he was admitted into the intensive care unit of Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Austin was hospitalized Monday, but Biden did not find out until Thursday. Austin's top deputy also did not know, even though she had assumed some of his duties while on vacation in Puerto Rico. The Pentagon said Austin was first hospitalized on December 22nd for an elective surgery. After being discharged a day later, he was admitted again on New Year's Day after experiencing severe pain. He remains hospitalized. Hundreds of Boeing 737 MAX 9 flights have been grounded or canceled after a refrigerator-sized fuselage door plug blew off an Alaska Airlines plane near Portland, Oregon, Friday. The incident, which occurred at 16,000 feet, forced the plane to make an emergency landing in Portland. The National Transportation Safety Board has revealed Alaska Airlines had concerns about the plane prior to the incident, but kept flying it. During three recent flights, the plane's auto-pressurization fail light had illuminated. In response, Alaska Airlines had restricted the plane from flying over water to increase the chances the pilots could, quote, return very quickly to an airport. In 2019, all Boeing 737 MAX 8 jets were grounded after 346 people died in crashes in Ethiopia and Indonesia. We'll speak with the mother of one of those victims who died in the Ethiopian crash, as well as a former Boeing supervisor later in the broadcast. In Bangladesh, Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has won a fourth straight term in a race marred with controversy after Bangladesh's main opposition party boycotted the elections. The opposition BNP, Bangladesh Nationalist Party, says as many as 20,000 of its members have been jailed in recent months in a nationwide crackdown. Many are speculating whether Hasina is trying to turn Bangladesh into a one-party state. She's the daughter of the founding president of Bangladesh. Wayne LaPierre, the longtime head of the National Rifle Association, has announced he's resigning ahead of opening arguments in a major corruption trial. New York Attorney General Letitia James sued LaPierre and other top NRA executives for using the group as a, quote, personal piggy bank. The trial could result in the NRA being dissolved. LaPierre has led the NRA since 1991. 
Meanwhile, New York Attorney General Letitia James has asked a judge to issue a $370 million fine against Donald Trump, his two adult sons, and the Trump Organization for committing decades of financial fraud. In a new court filing, James also asked for Trump to be barred from the New York real estate industry. In other legal news, the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear an appeal from Trump after judges in Colorado ruled the former president's ineligible to appear on Colorado's primary ballot. The justices will decide whether Trump violated the insurrectionist clause of the U.S. Constitution for his role in the January 6th insurrection. Oral arguments will be held February 8th. Meanwhile, President Biden has denounced Trump as a threat to democracy. In his first campaign speech of 2024, Biden spoke in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, on the eve of the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Donald Trump's campaign is about him, not America, not you. Donald Trump's campaign is obsessed with the past, not the future. He's willing to sacrifice our democracy, put himself in power. Biden is heading to Charleston, South Carolina today to speak at the Mother Emanuel AME Church, where the white supremacist Dylan Roof shot dead nine black parishioners in 2015. The Supreme Court is allowing Idaho to enforce a strict abortion ban, lifting an injunction that protected emergency room physicians from prosecution if they provide the procedure to save a pregnant person's life. Friday's ruling rolled back a lower court's decision temporarily blocking the Idaho law, which makes it a crime to perform or assist an abortion penishable with up to five years in prison. The ACLU said in response, quote, let's be very clear. The result will be that we will see more women like Kate Cox from Texas, who was forced to flee her home state to get the critical care she needed. Other women won't have that option, and some will die as a result of the abortion bans, unquote. The government of Azerbaijan has picked a former oil executive to be the president of the next U.N. climate summit, which will be held in the oil-rich country later this year. Mukhtar Babayev spent 26 years at Azerbaijan's state oil company before becoming Azerbaijan's ecology and natural resources minister. The recent U.N. climate summit in the United Arab Emirates was also headed by an oil executive, Sultan Al-Jaber, CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And the acclaimed TV broadcaster Mehdi Hassan has announced he's leaving MSNBC after his show was canceled. Hassan was one of the most prominent Muslim voices on American television. In October, the news outlet Semaphore reported MSNBC had reduced the roles of Mehdi Hassan and two other Muslim broadcasters on the network, Ayman Moeldin and Ali Velshi, following the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. Then in November, MSNBC announced it was canceling Mehdi Hassan's show shortly after he conducted conducted this interview with Mark Regev, an advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I've seen lots of children with my own lying eyes being pulled from the rubble. Uh, because so, they're the pictures Hamas wants you to see. Exactly my point, they're, they're the pictures Hamas wants you to see. people no, that your government has uh, killed. You accept that, right? You've killed children? Or do you deny no, that? No, I do not. I do not. I do not. First of all, you don't know how those people died, those children. Oh, wow. Mehdi Hassan announced he's resigning from MSNBC last night during the final episode of his program. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken's back in the Middle East to meet with leaders across the region. During a stop in Qatar, Blinken warned the war in Gaza could, quote, easily metastasize into a regional war. While Blinken's publicly calling for de-escalation, the Biden administration continues to face criticism for sending more weapons to Israel while carrying out its own attacks in Iraq and Syria, as well as targeting Houthi forces in Yemen. This comes as Israel's bombardment of Gaza has entered its fourth month, as the U.N. top humanitarian official warns the relentless assault has left Gaza uninhabitable. According to Palestinian health officials, the death toll in Gaza is nearing 23,000, including almost 10,000 children. Israel's attacks continue to take a devastating toll on Palestinian journalists. By one count, at least 100 Palestinian journalists have been killed so far since October 7th. On Sunday, an Israeli airstrike in southern Gaza killed two journalists, Mustafa Thuraya of Agence France-Presse and Hamza al-Dadou of Al Jazeera. Hamza was the eldest son of Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, Wael Al Dadu, who'd already lost his wife, daughter, another son, and a grandson in an Israeli airstrike in October, and then was wounded in another strike that killed his cameraman, Samar Al Daka. On Sunday, the BBC's Julian Marshall interviewed Israeli spokesperson Elan Levy. Uh, Al Jazeera operating in. Gaza legitimate journalists, as far as Israel is concerned. I'm not sure what standard we're using to measure legitimate journalists. We have intense criticism of Al Jazeera and the way that they have been fueling a lot of violence in this conflict. Okay, with their so, so Israel, the Israeli government, the Israeli government is not a fan of Al Jazeera. Is that what you're saying correct. to me? Correct. Right. We are not big fans of Al Jazeera. That is correct. We much prefer the BBC. Right. But so you would possibly prefer Al Jazeera not to have a presence in Gaza. We prefer for Hamas not to have a presence in Gaza. Well, I'm, ta- we I'm talking right about now. I'm talking about Al Jazeera. You would prefer Al Jazeera not to have a presence in Gaza. We would prefer that all media reporting about this conflict be accurate, not spread lies and disinformation in the way that Al Jazeera has been doing. For more, we're joined in Washington, D.C. by Trita Parsi, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His piece for the nation is headlined, Will Israel Drag the U.S. into Another Ruinous War? Trita, welcome back to Democracy Now! So we're talking to you um, on uh, the Blinken trip through the Middle East, something like the fifth time he'll be going back to uh, Israel and the West Bank. And when he was in Qatar this weekend— held a news conference. Um, the day he arrived in Qatar, Al Jazeera's reporter, Hamza al-Dadu, the son of the Gaza bureau chief of Al Jazeera, um, Wael al-Dadu, was killed in a U.S. airstrike on a car that also killed an AFP reporter. Can you talk about the significance of this? Well, this is the conflict in which we have seen more journalists being killed than in any other recent conflict. And it increasingly appears as if those are not accidents, but actually targeted, particularly in the case of this journalist. As you mentioned in your program, um, his family has been targeted. He has been targeted. And now his son has been killed as well. It increasingly looks as if 
uh, Israel is desiring to make sure that Al Jazeera no longer can operate in Gaza. And it is largely thanks to Al Jazeera that we know so much about what has been happening uh, in Gaza because they had a presence there from before the war began. So they were already there once the war started. Uh, this is a tremendous danger because with what uh, the uh, South Africans are accusing Israel of uh, and it comes to genocide, not having eyes and ears on the ground there completely changes the pictures in terms of what the Israelis can and cannot do. And talk about what this means uh, in terms of an escalation, not a de-escalation, although uh, Tony Blinken keeps talking about de-escalation, uh, of a wider war in the Middle East. Why he's in the Middle East, having gone from Turkey and Greece to Qatar— He's going to Saudi Arabia today, to Israel and to the West Bank and beyond. I think the Biden administration clearly do not want an escalation. They do not want to see a widening of the war. But the approach that they have pursued is one in which they're trying to maximize Israel's ability to continue to bomb Gaza while putting pressure on other actors in the region for them not to escalate. While the administration itself admits that there is no desire in Hezbollah, in Iran, for a wider war. So it's not as if they want that war uh, when it comes to Hezbollah, yet the pressure is supposed to be on them while not putting pressure on the Israelis. This is not going to work in the long run. We've already seen that day by day we're getting closer and closer towards a military confrontation that is much larger than just Gaza. Unless the Biden administration is willing to also put material support on Israel, we will most likely move further into that escalation. And this is what is so um, uh, perplexing about the Biden administration's position. The fastest and easiest way to actually get a de-escalation is most likely a ceasefire in Gaza. The groups such as Iraqi militias, the Houthis have made it clear that if there is a ceasefire, they will cease their attacks. Now, we have evidence of that as well, because when there was a ceasefire in the end of November of last year, for six days, there were no attacks whatsoever from the Iraqi militias. They completely stopped their attacks. There were six attacks the day before the ceasefire. But once there was a ceasefire, they're completely stopped. When it comes to the Houthis, there's only one attack during that period that we can attribute to them instead of daily attacks. So we have some clear evidence that if there is a ceasefire, there will be a de-escalation. Yet that is the option that the Biden administration is unwilling to pursue. Instead, it is going around the region asking other countries to put more pressure on Iran, on Hezbollah, on other actors. Some of that pressure is probably quite needed, but in the absence of a ceasefire, it will probably not be effective. As Tony Blinken, as President Biden calls for a de-escalation, um, they continue to provide weapons, circumventing Congress twice, providing artillery shells um, for Israel's bombardment of Gaza. You quote in your nation piece retired Israeli Major General Yitzhak Brick, who conceded in November— all of our missiles, the ammunition, the precision-guided bombs, all the airplanes and bombs, it's all from the U.S. Can you talk further about this, this contradiction between what the U.S. is saying um, and actually how much power it has? Give us a history lesson in the past, going back to President Reagan and Lebanon, when the U.S. says stop. 
The Biden administration, I think, has been pushing a narrative that essentially says that Biden doesn't have the leverage, the U.S. doesn't have the leverage to be able to stop this. It doesn't seem to be compatible with reality, because as you pointed out, the Israeli major general himself admits that all of these weapons are coming from the United States. And if the U.S. were to put a stop to these shipments, then the Israelis would not be able to continue this fight for much longer. Um, so a question is not whether the U.S. has leverage. It clearly does. The question is whether Biden is willing to use it. And so far, he has not been willing to use it because he's actually buying into supporting the Israeli objective of completely defeating Hamas. He seems to want to see Israel do to Hamas what the U.S. couldn't do to the Taliban. But we have historical examples. In 1982, when Israel went into Lebanon and the Reagan administration started to become increasingly concerned about this and viewed it as being detrimental to U.S. interests, eventually Ronald Reagan, both publicly and in a private conversation with Menachem Begin, essentially told him, you have to stop. Otherwise, I'm going to freeze the shipments of F-16 airplanes to Israel. Within 20 minutes, Menachem Begin called back and, uh, and ordered uh, a retreat from, of the Israelis out of Lebanon. We have clear examples in the past in which pressure, particularly public pressure, actually has been effective. The reason why Biden is not using it is because he's bought into the Israeli objective. I mean, all the polls in the United States show the overwhelming number of young voters are opposed to his position right now uh, when it comes to Israel and the West Bank, uh, people of color as well. Can you explain, as a person who understands a lot about what goes on inside the Beltway, why Biden is refusing to um, in any way— uh, stand up, not just signal on the outside calling for de-escalation, but actually making those calls since he's had, to say the least, so many with uh, Netanyahu. I think the Biden administration made a huge miscalculation from the outset. They did not think that there would be this type of a backlash uh, amongst the American public, including his own supporters, against the Israeli campaign. Now, when it has happened, it appears that the conclusion in the White House is that they have already lost these votes. They will not be able to gain them back if they shift their position. But if they shift their position, they will likely lose some of the voters that are in support of Israel's campaign. That calculation, however, seems to leave out a very important component, which is that there's also another block of voters a block of voters that have not yet given up on Biden. But if this war continues, as it now appears that it will, and particularly if it enlarges and drags the U.S. into it, then Biden also risks losing that block. And if that block is larger than the block of voters who support Israel's campaign, then Biden is compounding his initial miscalculation by further undermining his own ability to get reelected. The Iraqi government is blasting the United States after a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad killed a top commander in an Iran-backed militia in Iraq. On Friday, the Iraqi government announced plans to expel U.S.-led forces from Iraq. Can you talk about the significance of this, Trita? This is very important because this is highly problematic for the Iraqi government. The Iraqi government has tried to walk a fine balancing act. They wanted to keep uh, a certain degree of uh, U.S. military presence in Iraq, at least for the next few years, while at the same time balancing that against the pressure from Iraqi militias and others who want to see the U.S. leave. Once the U.S. is now actually assassinating 
uh, leaders of those militias inside of Iraq. In the uh, previous weeks, those attacks were taking place in Syria. Now they've also started to take place in Iraq itself. This is highly problematic. It's a violation of Iraq's sovereignty, according to the Iraqi government, and it further increases the pressure on the Iraqi government to ask the U.S. to leave, which I believe will happen relatively, uh, you know, uh, in the next uh, years or so. It will happen. It's not sustainable to have the U.S. troops there. Ultimately, from a U.S. perspective, I think that's actually a good thing. Those troops in Iraq are essentially sitting ducks and they're targets of these Iraqi militias. You take those troops out and the Iraqi militias don't have targets to, to shoot at. And, and as a result, the tripwire for the U.S. to get dragged into war, at least that one, will be removed. Let me ask you as we wrap up, a suspected Israeli strike in southern Lebanon has killed a senior commander in an elite unit of Hezbollah earlier today in a move that further escalates tension in the region. The significance of this from Iraq to southern Lebanon, Trita. So you have three major fronts in which the risk of escalation is significant. Of course, you have uh, the Red Sea with the Houthis attacking ships. You have the Iraqi militias and Syrian militias targeting U.S. troops. And then you have the desire of the Israelis to expand the war into Lebanon uh, and, and try to take out Hezbollah as well. The last one is getting really heated up right now. The attack this morning is yet another one. Uh, there has already been a bit of a shooting war, but it's at lower level uh, between Israel and uh, Hezbollah ever since the start of the war after October 7th. But it is escalating and it's getting deeper into both Israeli and Lebanese territory. One of the things that I think is highly problematic in the way that the mainstream media has covered this is that it talks about how Biden is grappling with how to uh, avoid an escalation of this war. And I genuinely believe that the Biden administration doesn't want that. But these reports don't seem to mention that the demand of some of these groups is an, a ceasefire. And if there is a ceasefire, they would also then de-escalate their attacks on U.S. troops, etc. Now, the reporting doesn't have to say that this is what is going to happen. It should be scrutinizing these statements by the Houthis and Iraqi militias. But at a minimum, it needs to mention that that is their demand so that the American public is aware that it appears to exist an option for de-escalation through a ceasefire. The fact that it is not mentioned in most mainstream media is highly problematic because it leaves the public with the wrong impression that the only way Biden can de-escalate is by further escalating the situation, by increasing the deterrence and attacking whether it's the Houthis or the Iraqi militias. The option of actually going for a ceasefire to de-escalate doesn't seem to be mentioned in the mainstream media. And that's a major mistake, I think. Trita Parsi, we want to thank you for being with us. Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We'll link to your piece in The Nation. Will Israel drag the U.S. into another ruinous war? We were just talking about Lebanon. Um, the Reuters reporter, Isam Abdullah, was also killed there. Reuters did an investigation saying it was an Israeli artillery strike that killed him. Uh, more than 100 Palestinian journalists have died uh, since October 7th. Coming up, we'll go to the occupied West Bank to speak with the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate. Stay with us.
Weidmeiser by Massive Attack. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we've reported, two more journalists in Gaza were killed in an Israeli airstrike this weekend. Among the victims, the eldest son of Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, Wael al-Dadu, just a few months ago, in October, he also lost 12 family members, including his wife, his 15-year-old son, his 7-year-old daughter, and his infant grandson in an Israeli airstrike. Like his father, Hamza al-Dadu worked for Al Jazeera. He was 27 years old. Hamza was reportedly driving in a car with other journalists on a road in Han Yunus when the vehicle was hit. The freelance journalist Mustafa Theraya, who was a stringer for Agence France Presse, AFP, was also killed, while a third, Hassan Rajab, was seriously injured. A video showed Wael Adadou crying next to his son's body, holding his hand. Wael spoke on Sunday. How can someone receive the death of their oldest son and everything in my life after I lost some of my family members, my wife, son Mahmoud, and Sham, and Adam? How can I receive this? The world must see with their own eyes and not with Israel's eyes. It must listen and watch all that is happening to the Palestinian people. What has Hamza done to them? And what has my family done to them? What have civilians in Gaza Strip done to them? They have not done anything. The world is blinded by what is going on in Gaza. Just last month, Wael Adadu was injured in an Israeli drone attack while covering the aftermath of an Israeli strike on a U.N. school sheltering displaced people in Khan Yunis. His cameraman, Al Jazeera photojournalist Samar Abulduka, bled to death over the course of more than five hours as Israeli forces reportedly prevented rescue workers and ambulances from reaching Samar. The Palestinian Journalist Syndicate says Israel's killed at least 102 journalists in Gaza since October 7th. For more, we go to the West Bank. We're joined by Anan Khusmar, a Palestinian journalist volunteer at the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate, which has filed an amicus brief in support of the Center for Constitutional Rights genocide lawsuit against Israel, citing the unprecedented number of Palestinian journalists killed in Gaza, saying they've been deliberately targeted for assassination by the Israeli military. Anand, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you talk about the journalists who were killed this weekend, Al Jazeera's Hamza al-Dadu, amazingly killed on the day that Blinken arrived in Qatar? Qatar owns Al Jazeera. Um, and uh, Mustafa Thuraya of Agence France Presse, and then put them in the broader context of how many Palestinians—we've not seen this any time in war— more than 100 Palestinian journalists, estimates from 70 to over 100, dead since October 7th. Yeah, yeah. thank you very much for having me to speak about this, uh, for us, very, very important uh, issue. Uh, Hamza Dahdouh and Mustafa Abu Traya are just the latest victims of uh, Israel's calculated and deliberate assassination campaign against Palestinian journalists that has been going on for the last three months. Unfortunately, every time we release a number, uh, a number uh, we have to update it within hours. Uh, 
sometimes. Um, our investigation so far uh, of the 109 journalists up to this moment that have been killed by Israel's uh, genocidal military campaign um, indicates that at least 96 of those were deliberately uh, and specifically targeted by surgical Israeli strikes against them at home or in the line of duty. Uh, 22 of those were killed in the night of duty uh, using sniper fire, drones, and uh, surgical airstrikes, similar to the one that took place yesterday that took the life of the two journalists. They were targeted in their car. Uh, the munition that was used was uh, big enough to damage the car and kill everybody inside, but it didn't hurt anybody around. And it, they were targeted at a moment where there was nobody close to the vehicle at the time. So it's clearly indicating that they were specifically targeted. Um, other than this, there is um, at least 74 cases of journalists that were killed at home specific in strikes that specifically hit their flats. Some of them are in big apartment blocks where they are on the fifth or sixth floor and their flat is targeted and no damage to any or limited damage to other uh, uh, nearby flats or homes. And in the remaining uh, 13 cases, we were just not able to determine who exactly was the uh, person targeted in the strike. So, for example, we excluded any cases uh, where uh, more than 10 people were killed. We excluded cases where people who were not at the flat or at the location were the journalists. So there is an element of you know what Israel likes to call collateral damage. Uh, we're also we've also excluded from the 96 that we suggest were at least 96 uh, specifically targeted uh, cases like Akram Shafi, who a couple of days ago um, passed away because uh, he was not allowed or he had no access to uh, adequate health health care. Excuse me. And at, le at least at the moment, there is 25 of our journalists are in similar life threatening uh, situations because of lack of access to medical health care. Um, also, the wider context of what's happening now is an indication that these journalists are being uh, targeted. As uh, the previous guest alluded to, uh, Israel's uh, interest is to um, shut down the coverage. And uh, these our journalists are a main portal and have played a, a key role uh, in uncovering the ongoing uh, military campaign by Israel. Um, other than this, many of our journalists received direct and indirect uh, threats and incitement against them that they had uh, personally reported either publicly or privately to us uh, due to fear that these publication of such reports uh, or threats uh, would actually escalate the situation and put them higher up in the uh, bank of targets for Israel. Um, You've said, also, you've said that um, 9 percent of all Palestinian journalists in the Gaza Strip have been killed since October 7th, and that you feel that press freedom organizations around the world have let Palestinian journalists down. How? Um, after 190 journalists have been killed, we're still hearing the same statements. Uh, that are calling for investigations. There are clear patterns. Yes, we haven't been able to establish every single case, but uh, uh, I am sorry, but three months into a genocidal campaign that has made 
Palestinian journalists a primary target for them. 9% of our journalists in Gaza have been killed. This is eight points higher than the average across the Gaza Strip. Um, I talked about the threats and the specific targeting, and we're still hearing the same thing. I think if press freedom organizations are satisfied at the level of reaction and outrage that they've shown, let alone the action that could actually save the lives of uh, Palestinian journalists, then we should question even the very purpose of their existence, if that's the best they can do and say. Finally, can you explain the lawsuit um, of the Center for Constitutional Rights that you have filed an amicus brief on behalf of the Palestinian journalists, the significance of this and what this would mean? Um, this lawsuit aims to block any further uh, diplomatic and military support to Israel. It's just one step, one of many things that we are trying, but unfortunately, um, uh, this uh, assassination campaign has continued, and we've, say, we've seen it as part of a wider escalation of use of uh, violence against Palestinian journalists also in the West Bank, not only journalists, uh, also medics. We have, since uh, the last three months, 47 pa Palestinian journalists in the West Bank have been arrested. 33 of them are still in prison. Uh, 18 of them under administrative detention, and the rest haven't been faced uh, with any charges um, at all. Uh, this level of uh, escalation of use of force uh, is seen is uh, also in uh, regular incursions where the Israeli army uh, targets medical staff and journalists. Uh, for example, there has been, where I am in Tulkarim, regular incursions that uh, have an emerging pattern of trying to maintain uh, continued uh, presence and curfew over Palestinian cities, almost as a practice in order for the eventuality of needing to control such cities for extended period of times, uh, like I, I explained. And the focus of these attacks is collective punishment, uh, digging down, digging out, for example, in Tulkarim, uh, the water pipes to cut the water from the uh, locals, uh, shooting at the electricity grid to cut the electricity. And also all of this comes with a huge price on our local institutions that Israel is trying to destroy. Uh, and this also goes back to uh, the, the attack on Palestinian journalists in, in Gaza. Uh, if you look at the profiles of those who are targeted, you see that they are not just targeted for being journalists, they're being targeted for being uh, an important part of the social fabric. Uh, our famous journalists in, in Gaza are not uh, what you would expect from an elite journalist uh, sitting um, outside. Uh, these are humble people who have been uh, the foundations of our society for a long time. And alongside our journalists, there's been lecturers, for example, most media lecturers and journalism lecturers who are also reported as journalists being killed, but they are actually media lecturers as well. And we've had uh, heads of universities targeted, poets, and uh, you name it. So the, the, the one needs to look at the Israeli Bank of Targets uh, seriously and the deliberate nature of, uh, of this. And I would like to end with, I think, one of the most striking things is when you speak to Palestinian journalists in Gaza, they never complain about their own suffering or uh, what they've been going through as journalists. They, they literally want to continue to do their work to the last drop of their uh, blood in order to bring an end to this, to, to stop the genocide. Anand Rosmaro, and thank you so much for being with us, a Palestinian journalist with the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate, speaking to us from Talkurum in the occupied West Bank. Next up, 
Hundreds of Boeing 737 MAX 9 jetliners have been either canceled or grounded after a door plug blew off, leaving a gaping hole in Alaska Airlines' plane Friday. We'll speak with a former Boeing senior manager who raised safety concerns and with Nadja Milleron, whose daughter Samia died in a Boeing MAX plane as she flew over Ethiopia. Stay with us. Secret Garden by Stefan Bashi-Hungens. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show looking at how hundreds of Boeing 737 MAX 9 flights have been grounded or canceled after a refrigerator-sized fuselage door plug blew off an Alaska Airlines plane above Portland, Oregon, Friday. The incident, which occurred at 16,000 feet, forced the plane to make an emergency landing there. The National Transportation Safety Boards revealed Alaska Airlines had concerns about the plane prior to the incident, but kept flying it. During three recent flights, the plane's auto-pressurization fail light had illuminated. In response, Alaska Airlines had restricted the plane from flying over water to increase the chances the pilots could, quote, return very quickly to an airport. In 2019, all Boeing 737 MAX 8 jets were grounded after 346 people died in crashes in Ethiopia and Indonesia. All people on board both flights died. After those accidents, the Department of Justice charged Boeing with felony fraud. In February, a federal judge in Texas denied a request by families of those killed in the two crashes to throw out or adjust a settlement in the case. For more on that case and this new incident, we're joined by two guests. In Seattle, Ed Pearson's with us, executive director of the Foundation for Aviation Safety, former Boeing senior manager. Also with us, Nadja Milleron. She became an aviation safety advocate after her daughter, Samia Rose Stumo, was killed along with 156 others in the 2019 Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, which was a Boeing 737 MAX. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Ed Pearson, let's begin with you. Analyze what you think happened here um, and what needs to be done. Um, at this point, all MAX 9s um, apparently are either canceled or grounded um, for further inspection. Good morning. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, yes, I think that right now, obviously, there's an investigation that's being conducted and we still don't know a whole lot, but it's certainly seems to be leaning more toward a manufacturing type of a problem. And as far as what needs to get done, again, uh, as you kind of talked about earlier, and this is um, unfortunately a tip of the iceberg type situation. So there's been a, a quite a, a few serious incidents that have occurred that the public is generally unaware of. Talk about 
your warnings as a former senior manager at the Boeing 737 factory in Renton, Washington. We're speaking to you in Seattle. You pushed Boeing leadership to shut down production operations before both crashes in 2019. Right. This has unfortunately been a, a long-standing issue. Um, it's not a new a new thing, as you point out. The um, incidents and, excuse me, the accidents that occurred in 2018 and 2019, uh, as you mentioned, we had a lot of problems in the factory. Uh, everything was being rushed. We had a shortage of skilled employees. We were having all kinds of issues with quality problems. Uh, there was just incredible schedule pressure. There's a saying in the factory, they call it schedule is king. And as we were going through those types of issues, um, myself and others you know, verbalized our concerns, and we did our best to try to stop the production system at that point. And unfortunately, we were sadly unable to do that. Um, what I've been told from employees that currently work uh, at that location is that despite the two crashes that killed 346 people and despite the $20 billion loss to the company and criminal behavior and all that, um, the situation is, is as bad or worse than it was when, when I was there, which is very hard to believe. So. Uh, right now, it, I, I would say that it seems like the FAA is certainly not doing their job. They're continuing to fall down on the job. And, you know, they're solely responsible for making sure that the Boeing company uh, complies with all the regulations. And so it is very concerning. Um, I would tell you that this incident with Alaska, I'm sure, is uh, shocking to passengers. But for those of us who have been watching this for a while, it's, it's really um, not a surprise at all. You know, we've seen ever since the MAX has been put back in service, over 20 serious production quality defects that have surfaced. Um, and we're not talking trade tables. We're talking about flight-related systems. And the public is unaware of this. Um, these are reports that go through uh, in the FAA database. And it's, you know, it's not something that the airlines want to talk about. It's certainly not something Boeing or the FAA want to talk about. Um, and so that's a real problem. The other thing we're seeing is that there's a, lots of requests for engineering exemptions, which is really shocking when you think that after all that, why are we having the Boeing company right now ask for delays for um, engineering exemptions? Basically, there's at least you know three or four just in the last couple months where the company has made requests for uh, petition for ex exemptions from legally required engineering design standards, and these are involving flight control related systems, uh, stall management, yaw dampener, computer, the flaps, slats, electronic uh, actuator unit. Um, you know, just recently, the engine inlet um, icing. I mean, these are important systems. And why are we, after all this, you know, trying to give them um, special treatment? Uh, that's not what the FAA should, shouldn't even consider this. I wanted to bring Nadia Miller on into the conversation, an aviation safety advocate. You know, just by chance, on Friday, we spoke to your uncle, um, uh, Nadja. We spoke to Ralph Nader, and I asked him about your daughter, about Samia and her death in 2019, along with, what, 156 others uh, over Ethiopia. She was a public health advocate. This is Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, which was a Boeing 730 MAX, and that case, a MAX 8, this a MAX 9. Um, what was your response when you heard about what happened on Friday? This, I mean, it's astounding, this area the size of a door, the size of a refrigerator, 
the side just blew out. And it's only by chance that this almost full flight did not have people sitting right there. Uh, the seats were ripped from the uh, from what took place, the uh, that whole wall going out. Now, a Portland teacher has found that in their backyard. Talk about your response. First, I was so grateful, and all the families were so grateful that no one died. So this is a huge wake-up call for the American people. We have been trying Ed Pearson and Joe Jacobson, Joe Jacobson used to work for the FAA, have been trying to highlight all of these pilot reports that have been happening over the last two years. There are serious, serious problems with these MAX planes, and they have caused near accidents on repeated occasions. And we try to get the press to cover this so that the American people and all passengers around the world can choose whether or not to get on this flight. You know, my daughter had no idea. We had no idea that this was a dangerous plane, even though there had been a crash in Indonesia before, but it had been downplayed and said that it was the pilot's fault and badly trained pilots, which in the end was not true. And we couldn't choose. She couldn't choose whether or not to get on the plane. So now passengers should have the information that these planes have repeated problems. A lot of them are manufacturing problems. And Boeing is trying to evade safety regulations. Last year in December of 2020, to 2022, they went to Congress because the FAA wouldn't, all the safety regulations are written in blood. All of them have been, are there because people have died. So that's a, the regulation is a response to the death and trying to prevent more deaths. So Boeing went to Congress and through the military Authorization Act, they got an, another exemption for themselves. So, so going to Congress to get exemptions for safety. I mean, the only thing that can be done, I think, is that the, the passenger has to be able to choose. And yesterday was the deadline for the agreement. So Boeing has criminal charges against them from the DOJ. The DOJ and Boeing made an agreement that is an illegal agreement because they didn't consult the victims. So in the United States, we have the Crime Victims Rights Act. And when there is any kind of negotiations or procedure going on in a criminal case, the prosecutor has to contact the victims. And we reached out to the DOJ and said, we're victims. And they said, no, no, there's nothing going on. There's nothing going on. And then in the Trump administration, the day after the attack in the in the Capitol, which was January 6th, the day after when all the press in, in focus was not uh, on Boeing, they made a deal, which was a deferred prosecution agreement where Boeing had to behave well, not risk anyone's life, not defraud anyone, not lie to anyone uh, for three years. And then they would apply to the court, uh, the judge for a dismissal of these charges. Well, this is a very clear example of how they have not been behaving, how they do risk people's lives. And we have this murderer out there in the world that has already killed 346 people and has not changed their behavior. And the only way they are going to change their behavior, in my view, is if there's accountability and if the judge does not 
let us sign the agreement and say, yes, we're going to dismiss the charges. We need to have a trial. We need to have accountability on the part of the responsible executives. And also they need to feel it in their pocketbook. People shouldn't fly the max and you really shouldn't fly the max just for your own safety. Ed Pearson, can you talk about why you quit Boeing? You know, well, first, I just want to say that everything that Nadia said, I 100 percent agree with. Um, and there's, there's so much here to unravel. And, and we really need accountability because that is going to drive the future changes that we need. So um, why I quit is um, honestly some of the same things we're seeing today. And in fact, it's, it's even worse than you probably know. Um, Boeing re- removed production quality uh, inspections uh, and, and they removed large numbers of them, thousands of them. They actually removed. And we have evidence and information that indicates that uh, this was done without the FAA's knowledge. And I'm including the MAX airplanes. It's not just the 737 MAX airplanes. This is also for the other airplanes at Boeing, um, like the 777, uh, the 767, the 87. I mean, it's astonishing if you think about it. There's been removal of quality control inspections. There was some internal whistleblowers that reported this, and the FAA substantiated. Now, this is after you know, two fatal crashes and 346 people. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's insanity. And so it's all being done. And of course, you know, what you'll hear from Boeing and you'll hear from um, the FAA is the airplane has flown millions of miles safely. Well, that's not actually correct, obviously. And I would also add that, it, you know, those, uh, that type of data is um, metrics is provides, you know, zero insight into the quality of individual airplanes and has never prevented a crash. So those statistics are worn out old statistics that don't really mean anything. And, and why I quit is because I believe that the Boeing company can be a much better company than it is. It's historically, as you know, been an incredible company. I know there's some inc- incredible people, but the leadership is, is horrible. And, and the pressure to produce and pr- put air, airplanes out um, and, you know, um, take chances like this with people's lives, it's, it's, it's unacceptable. And so, you know, the FAA, and also I want to make a very clear point, the Department of Transportation uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, we've written to him on several occasions, haven't even received the response, and, we're, and he oversees the FAA. And so we are very concerned. Um, I've talked with pilots and uh, mechanics and other people, and it's just very concerning, the whole, the whole picture. Um, I didn't want to quit Boeing. I didn't actually quit. I actually retired early, um, but I just couldn't continue to work for a company that you know, did that and put that kind of pressure on employees to produce. And it, it's not healthy and it's not good for the passengers. Let me Anybody. ask you what we just have a few seconds, but uh, the um, CEO of Boeing, Calhoun, has called for a critical safety meeting scheduled for January 9th at the company's Renton, Washington factory, um, stressing the need for transparency and collaboration with customers and regulators and understanding what happened. Do you have faith in this, Ed Pearson? Well, look, uh, he, sh- he should be in the factory a heck of a lot more than he is now. He, he barely comes to the factory. He acts like he is on the factory floor all the time. That's not accurate. That's not accurate. Um, he needs to get out of his corporate headquarters and go out and meet with we people. We have to leave it there, but we will continue to follow okay. this case. Ed Pearson with the Foundation for Aviation Safety and Nadja Miller on aviation safety ed- advocate lost her daughter in a Max plane. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.